The second reason that these three men gave for rejecting the freedom of the will is human depravity. Luther and Calvin Edwards said, in effect, that human beings are too wicked, they're too bad to be able to choose freely for God. They said that ever since the fall, human beings are so sinful to the core that they are totally unable to turn to God on their own. Now that's what's called total depravity. Another word for it is disabling depravity. It's a depravity that disables man. And this presented such a problem for these three men that they couldn't see a way around it. Let me give a, uh, Calvin, for example, said that Adam and Eve, before the fall, did have free will. They could have chosen either way, either to obey God or reject him, but of course they disobeyed him. But once they sinned, they plunged not only themselves but the whole human race into sin and depravity and condemnation and everybody born since then has been born with a corrupted nature and so by nature, always by nature, chooses to sin instead of to obey God. So Calvin said, once the fall took place, man no longer has a free will. In other words, what Calvin said, human beings can no longer turn to God in and of themselves and therefore their wills aren't free. That's not quite fully logical, as I trust I'll be able to point out. That's why Luther's book, Against Freedom of Will, was entitled, The Bondage of the Will. And Calvin's book was entitled, The Bondage and Liberation of the Will, because he thought there was a sense of liberation once a person's born again. But anyway, um, what they are saying is the only freedom we have is the freedom to choose evil. They would say, if by free will you mean the freedom to choose evil, yes, you got free will, but that's the only choice you can make. Um, and as I said before, if that's the only choice I can make, I haven't made a choice as far as I'm concerned. So were they right about the condition, the sinful, depraved condition of fallen humanity? Does the Bible teach that we are so depraved and sinful that we are, now notice the words carefully, that we are helpless to turn to God without first receiving His grace. It may surprise you to know that I think the Bible does teach that. That we are so depraved and sinful that we are helpless to turn to God without, there's the key words, without first receiving his grace. Now, our Free Will Baptist Treatise says, and I quote, uh, well, it's, it's a free statement rather than a quote. But anyway, it says that since the fall, all humans are unwilling to obey God and inclined to evil. Now, that sounds like total depravity to me. But what's more important than what our treatise says is what the Bible says. So let me share with you a little bit about what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, now, you know already that a natural man is a person who hadn't been born again, right? 
And what the Bible is saying, that is a person who hasn't been born again, cannot understand spiritual things. Now, I think we all know that to be true. Right? Well, if a person by nature can't understand spiritual truths, then he can't understand the gospel. And so he can't possibly believe it. Well, let's move on. The Bible says that unsaved people are spiritually dead, right? Uh, Ephesians 2.1, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You know as well as I do that God told Adam that in the day they ate of the forbidden fruit, they'd die, right? They did. Romans 5.12 then says, by one man, that is by Adam, sin entered the world and death passed upon all men for all have sinned. Dead people can't possibly put faith in God, can they? Furthermore, the Bible says unsaved people are blind to the truth. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the God of this world, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Blind people can't possibly see the truth of the gospel. So how can they believe it if they can't see it, if they're dead? And what does John 6, 44 say? You probably already got that one memorized. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father draws him. That says something about ability, doesn't it? No one is able to come to me unless something has to happen first. The Father draws him. That's the key then. God has to work first. God takes the initiative by his grace and does the first work before the blind, dead, deaf sinner can exercise that freedom of the will. Back to that in a moment. Did any of you turn to God all by yourself? Don't answer the question out loud. That's a rhetorical question. I don't think you did. I know I didn't. If God hadn't worked on us, we wouldn't have come to him. Down deep in our hearts, we know that. And that's what Luther and Calvin were saying. And they were right up to that point. But then they made their mistake. They said what that means is the implication of that, they said, is that God has to first regenerate a person. And only then, after God regenerates him, can that person come to faith. Regeneration first, faith later. Not necessarily later in time, but following logically from God's first work of regeneration. But that wasn't what John 6.44 said. John 6.44 didn't say no one can come to me unless the Father regenerates him. It said unless the Father draws him. That's the difference that's involved here. And that's why you can believe in universal human depravity and still believe in the freedom of the will at the same time. Free will is the ability to choose, right? Well, 
Let me give you an illustration that may help with this. I hope it does. Think about somebody in prison. You know anybody in prison? Well, okay. We'll call him John Doe. John Doe's in prison. Let me ask you a question. Has John, off there in the prison, has he lost his ability to choose to buy a banana split at the Dairy Queen close to his home? Now, don't answer me. Just think about it. I would say to you, he's not lost his ability to make that choice. He has that ability as much as he ever had. But he's in a set of circumstances where he can't exercise his freedom. He's got the freedom, but he can't exercise it. Does that make sense? Well, I think that's the way it is with unsaved people. The fallen sinner, all by himself, sinful, depraved, Hasn't lost the ability to choose for God, but he's in a set of circumstances where something has to change before he can exercise that freedom. He still has a free will, but he's blind and dead, and he certainly can't save himself unless God draws him. And that brings us back to John 6, 44, and again, the word is draw. This drawing is what I call enabling grace. Now, the theologian and another great theologian, James Arminius, called it prevenient grace or preventing grace. The trouble with that word is we don't use that word any, any longer to mean that. So, I call it enabling grace. Sometimes I've called it pre-regenerating grace, but anyway... What is this? It's the work of God that enables a blind, bound, dead sinner to hear and understand and then respond in faith or unbelief, exercising his free will. That work of drawing, enabling, I think involves two basic things. Now, there may be other things that go along with it, but these are, the, these are at the heart of it. These are the two things involved in God's enabling grace that has to change a man's circumstances or a woman's circumstances before that person can exercise the free will they constitutionally have. Those two things are the Word of God and the Spirit of God. When the Word of God is proclaimed, to a person, and the Spirit of God brings understanding or conviction of the truth of the Word of God to a blind, dead, bound sinner. Then that sinner is enabled to understand and to respond in faith or not as he or she freely chooses. So let me not just emphasize those two elements a bit as we move toward a conclusion here. First, the Word of God. Dear friends, there is power in the very Word of God as it is made known to people. 
You remember Romans chapter 10, verses 10 to 17. I'm not going to take time to read it, but Paul tells us about a chain of events that takes place that leads to salvation, right? The first thing is the preacher sent. And when the preacher sent, he proclaims the word. The sinner then hears the word, and then comes faith. That's the chain of events that's involved. And Paul's conclusion, quoting Paul himself, is, so then, what? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's where the word of God is involved in this. But now, along with that, don't overlook the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit with the word. Now remember, the word of God is what? It's the breath of God, and the breath of God is the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, which is a way of translating just one Greek word that says all scripture is God-breathed. And it's breathed by the Holy Spirit. And then John 16, 8 says that the work of God's Spirit includes to reprove or convict the world. That's the fallen world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The Spirit does that using the Word of God that the Spirit inspired. So when the Word of God is proclaimed, the Spirit is at work to convict, convince people of its truth. So even though they are blind and dead and deaf and bound, the effect of the Word under the work of the Holy Spirit is to enable them to see and understand enough that they are then, their circumstances are different, and they are enabled to exercise that choice, which is their constitutional capacity. Enabling grace is a wonderful grace. All of God's grace is wonderful, isn't it? Well, I'm ready for a conclusion. It's interesting to me how Luther and Calvin, for example, dealt with passages in the Bible. I'm just going to use one example. could use many. Deuteronomy 30 is the one I'll use as an example. That's when Moses is speaking to the Israelites shortly before they go into Canaan. And in Deuteronomy 30, Moses says, I have set before you life and death. Blessing and cursing. Choose. That's what Moses said. Now that sounds like free will to me. Luther and Calvin said, no, 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 no. That's God's law. And by God's giving his law, the only thing he does that for is to show human beings how wicked and unable to obey him they are. They couldn't possibly have obeyed him. Now that's where I think they make their mistake. Because I think that occasions like that, and there are many through the Bible, they're all through the scriptures, you see. Not just Deuteronomy 30, I'm just using one example of many possibilities. I think 
that the word of God being proclaimed by Moses, and I think the Holy Spirit was at work with that, and I think it was a gracious drawing invitation to the Israelites that they could, in fact, choose life. And in fact, if I had more time, I'd remind you that Paul himself says in that wonderful chapter in Romans chapter 10, quoting that very passage, that that's the way the gospel works. See, Moses went on to say, don't say that it's all from yonder somewhere up in heaven out of your reach. It's not. It's in your reach. You can. And Paul says, you can. You see, if you will confess with your mouth, it's that near to you. It's as near as your mouth and your heart. Paul applies the very passage to the gospel, you see, in that regard. And I think that's the way it is. I think when God gives invitations like that in the Bible, the sweet winds of grace are blowing. When he does that, enabling people, drawing people, making it possible for them in spite of their sinfulness, which otherwise would keep them out of glory, enabling them to make the choice. So yes, it's, it's quite true, I believe, that no human being left alone would ever turn to God on his own. <laughs> Thank the Lord he hasn't left us alone. He hasn't left us alone. Though we're blind and deaf and bound, he enables us to hear and see. I think it really amounts to two things. He enables us to see the predicament we're in. And he enables us to see the provision that he's made for us in that predicament. And once we're enabled to see those two things, that's enough to enable us to make a choice for him. And I think you'll agree with me on this concluding statement. When we have chosen to receive that free gift he offers us, we know very well we didn't save ourselves. God did it. He did it all in that regard. In other words, we know what Luther said. We've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by the work of Christ alone. And again, I say, I know I'm saying it to myself, but amen. I like that truth. Um, okay. It's not an hour and a half yet. We don't have to stay an hour and a half. Nobody said we do. I just wonder if anybody would like to raise a question. This is a seminar time. I really wasn't preaching, but on the other hand, I guess I did preach some, but anyway. Uh, would you like to raise any, any questions at all? I, you know, we'll throw it open. We may cut it short, but anyway. <laughs> Once your free will activates, were you born at two years old or 13? 
when is free will activated in a person? Well, you know, I haven't really stopped to think about that in terms of a person's lifespan. But as I've said, I believe it's a constitutional capacity that is a part of the very nature of being a human being. So I think that it's there from the moment, uh, well, you know, we anti-abortionists would say from the moment of conception. But uh, as we all know, little children have, little infants have constitutional abilities that they aren't quite able to exercise yet, you know, and, and I don't know. Uh, but... Um, It's true, they don't choose that, yeah. They don't even choose to exist, you know. Yeah. Well, they certainly don't have a free will before they exist. They're in a set of circumstances where they're not able to exercise that capacity. Uh, perhaps so. I don't know. That's just that's that's worth thinking about. But I don't think I'm going to come up with an answer tonight. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, yeah, what he's, what he's asking is this. Is this business of, of um, the unconditional eternal security, is that, is that amount to saying that a person loses free will when they get saved because then they can't possibly uh, go back on God again? Um, I suppose in a way it does, and naturally we free willers would want to say, well, we, you know, we still believe they've got free will even after they're saved and could turn away from God, and that's involved. But in the Calvinistic system, that's really more an element of, of the matter of election than it is the matter of free will. In other words, people are... Uh, the ones who are saved are the elect, and God has in eternity chosen them not just to get born again on earth, but to be elect for eternity. So as a result of that, their, their perseverance is necessary in that regard. Yes, and of course that's a different, that's a different uh, animal. Uh, and the truth is, I guess we really face that animal more than we do full-fledged five-point Calvinism. Although, believe me, full-fledged five-point Calvinism is alive and well in the world of, of the church. Uh, it's growing, for that matter, thriving. But it's true that many, many people we know 
and, uh, and I'm not running down anybody when I call names, but many independent Baptists, many Southern Baptists, that sort of thing, who argue against the possibility of apostasy don't believe real Calvinism. And in my book, Grace, Faith, Free Will, I call them sub-Calvinists. Um, and they base their idea of security more on the matter of the promises and purposes of God, uh, what God has promised to believers and that sort of thing like that, than they do on the, the doctrines of, of uh, unconditional election and uh, limited atonement and that sort of thing like that. But uh, uh, I'm sure they wouldn't say that a person who's saved has lost his free will. But they would say something like the effects of regeneration are such that that person will not. And one thing you'd have to face up to with that would be, what about after we get to heaven? Will we lose free will when we get to heaven? And yet we would all agree that nobody's going to fall from heaven. Uh, well, anyway, okay. Uh, yes. A little louder. Well, the answer is simpler than you might think. The answer is that the missions has been predestined also. God has predestined the means along with the ends. So, yes. It, it makes faith a gift, specifically speaking, a gift to the elect. Uh, a lot of people do not realize that in a thoroughgoing Calvinistic system, regeneration precedes faith, logically and often chronologically. Yeah, but I would say it's like God turned a switch on inside you. You know, so that your light burns. Uh, it, did I make sense in saying that? Um, in other words, uh, and, and by the way, I really think one of the one of the real faults of Calvinism that perhaps we Arminians have failed to challenge them adequately on is the role they give to the Word of God. Because you see, in the Calvinistic system, the Word of God plays absolutely no part in regeneration. Regeneration is totally apart from the Word. Uh, and I think you can show, now I didn't bring notes with me tonight to deal with that aspect of it, but I think you can show that the New Testament doesn't merely say that faith comes by the Word. It also says, as Paul says to the Galatians, for example, you received the Spirit by the Word. And that's what happens at regeneration. You receive the Spirit. Uh, so I think you can show that it's not just faith that comes by the word, but also regeneration that's by the word. Um, uh, by the washing of the water of the word. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. Well, anyway, um, uh, I, I, I got excited there and got off track a little bit from, your, uh, from what you were saying. But what they're saying is 
that once God regenerates a person, then the person can understand the word. See, the point of difference is the Calvinist is saying that it takes the work of regeneration to enable the person to believe. Uh, but then once God has regenerated person, the person, then the person can receive the word, and then comes faith and repentance. In other words, faith and repentance are the two elements of conversion. So then conversion follows, logically, from regeneration. Um, and, and what have you. Barry? Well, okay, uh, let me first of all say that there have to be two answers because some Southern Baptists are full-fledged Calvinists and some are not, so it depends on the Southern Baptist. If the, if the Southern Baptist is a full-fledged Calvinist, then you've got to deal with the whole gamut of grace, faith, free will uh, to, to show what the difference is. If not, if the Southern Baptist pre preaches universal atonement and the ability of the individual in response to the preaching of the word and the work of the spirit, to respond and choose for or against. And many Southern Baptists do. By the way, this is a big argument among Southern Baptists. Calvinism and Arminianism is a big issue among Southern Baptists right here today. You know. um, and uh, some Southern Baptists have started calling themselves Arminian in order to get around that particular issue. But anyway, if that's all, if, if they are... If they are like us except for security, then I usually, when people ask me the difference, I say, well, the difference is one point of doctrine and the point of the ordinances. That's really the difference. The point of doctrine is security. That's the difference between us and those who preach universal atonement and the ability of a person to choose uh, to receive or reject Christ. Uh, then the point of the ordinances is, and this is the way I say uh, respond to them. I say as far as, as far as baptism is concerned, in most Southern Baptist churches these days, there is no difference between us and them on baptism. But traditionally, Southern Baptists practiced what we, what we call alien baptism. Didn't matter who you'd been baptized by. If you hadn't been baptized by them, you had to be baptized again. You know, traditionally. Now, most of them these days don't do that. Secondly, it's communion. Originally, traditionally, Southern Baptists practiced closed communion. But now most of them practice open communion just like we do. And then, of course, the third ordinance is the big ticker. That's different. They don't practice feet washing. We do provide it. You notice the way I said that? I didn't say we practice it. I said we provide it. Some of us practice it and some of us don't. But anyway. Yes? Well, I guess, I guess what I would say is they don't get around it. Uh, they wouldn't want to admit that they make God the author of evil. But everything they say makes God the author of evil. Um, let's see, which one am I thinking about quoting now? I don't remember whether it was Luther, Calvin, or Edwards at the moment. One or the other of them 
really winds up and, and, and actually says, God put Adam and Eve in a situation, in a set of circumstances where they had to sin. Now, he would still say that doesn't make God cause of evil. But as far as I'm concerned, it does. So that's, that's, that's where that comes in. Well, yes? You, you'll have to do it a little louder. Double predestination. Well, some Calvinists would say they don't believe in double predestination and some would say they do, but they all really do. And double predestination simply means that God predestines both the saved to be elect and to go to heaven and predestines the lost not to be saved and to go to hell. That comes to a point which I do make in this new book in the conclusion What's the bottom line of difference between us and the, and the full-fledged Calvinists? The bottom line I have decided is simply this. Calvin is saying that God looks on this whole mass of human beings who are fallen, you know, all the human beings in history who are fallen and sinful and going to hell. And God decides, you know, I'm going to save some of them. And he decides which ones he's going to save. And then this is the point. And makes absolutely no provision for anybody else. That's really the bottom line of the difference between the absolute Calvinistic, you know, the full-fledged Calvinistic position and our position. Um, I really think, I said already, we need to challenge them on the role of the Word of God in the salvation of individuals. And I think we really need to challenge them on universal atonement. Because I think we've got really good biblical evidence on both of those issues to challenge them with. But anyway, yes, sir? So how do we as free will Baptists look on the doctrine of election? Well, the way I look on it, uh, and as I'm trying to think now, I don't know that our Free Will Baptist Treatise speaks to the issue, so I don't want to speak for all Free Will Baptists, but the way I look on it is this. God, in eternity, before the foundation, and this goes back to what I said earlier about what he saw before any of it happened and incorporated in his plan. And God, in eternity, chose to save believers. And that's where, again, that bottom line difference comes in. For the full-fledged Calvinists, he didn't choose to save believers. 1 Corinthians chapter... Um, uh, 1, I guess it is, verse 21, is another verse that I think Arminians have not used as well as they might otherwise uh, use. Um, verse 21, 1 Corinthians 1, 21. 
After that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God. Now, let me stop there long enough to say, whatever pleased God in eternity is his eternal good pleasure. That's one of the aspects that Calvinists love to talk about, what God's eternal good pleasure was. Okay, that's God's eternal good pleasure. It pleased God in eternity. To do what? To save those who believe. I think that's a real good verse to use in the, in the, in the matter. 